This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The evaluation of elbow pain can be quite challenging. The elbow itself is a complicated joint and has a capability not only of flexion and extension, but also pronation and supination. Clinically, elbow pain can originate from the joint itself, the surrounding soft tissues, or be the site of referred pain. With us today to sort out the variety of causes of elbow pain is Dr. John Barlow, an orthopedist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. John, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about first, one of the most common causes of elbow pain, and this is something I've experienced myself. Let's talk about lateral and medial epicondylitis. That's a great question. And as an elbow specialist myself, I think if I looked at all patients who come in with elbow pain, 80 to 90% will have epicondylitis as the presenting symptom. Certainly the most common is lateral epicondylitis, and that's so-called tennis elbow. And I think that predominates most of the diagnoses. Medial epicondylitis, or pain on the inside part of the elbow, is the other. The biggest differentiation is what location that elbow pain happens in. Lateral epicondylitis happens over the outside or lateral part of the elbow, medial epicondylitis on the inside part of the elbow. I think the other thing that really differentiates them, which we'll talk about some more later hopefully, is the differentiation of the medial side of the elbow, particularly with its location near the ulnar nerve, which can be a real problem. And it makes medial epicondylitis sometimes a little more complicated and a little bit more nuanced than lateral epicondylitis. Lateral epicondylitis, also known as tennis elbow, and there are other causes of lateral epicondylitis other than playing tennis. In my case, I've experienced it almost annually as I put on anti-fouling paint on the bottom of my boat. My kids mutinied, and I had to do the whole thing myself, and it starts going on as liquid, then it goes on as paste, and every year I would get a lateral epicondylitis. So what other things can cause lateral or medial epicondylitis? That's a great question, and I would say most patients are like you. It happens from an activity of leisure or sometimes a work-related activity, and I would say a small portion of patients ever play tennis or have tennis as Mm -hmm. a cause of their lateral epicondylitis. Most causes are repetitive activities that that put the elbow on some stress or tension, so that's oftentimes occupational, somebody who works in a factory or works with a repetitive job, Or that's why obviously tennis can be a cause is a repetitive tennis related activity where somebody is using the arm in space and in a repetitive way. And oftentimes, just like with the boat that you have to get out on the water, they're unwilling to stop, even though it's starting to get a little bit sore. Right. Yeah, it didn't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) And medial epicondylitis has been known as golfer's elbow. There must be something about golfing that makes them more predisposed to getting this. Interestingly, I think golfer's elbow is more commonly in golfers. So we oftentimes see people, it is a little bit more specific for golfers, and it's pain over the inside part of the elbow. I think that this one is really interesting because oftentimes it requires a little bit more detailed physical exam and otherwise to differentiate it because some patients have ulnar nerve problems or uh, other problems with the muscles that can cause some pain on the inside rather than just a tendonitis. So similar style activities, but oftentimes it is truly in golfers. And is it typically when they hit the ball that they're putting tension on these uh, medial fibers? 
sometimes it is its impact and i think a lot of it is repetitive just like lateral epicondylitis so many patients who i see with either lateral or medial epicondylitis say i remember the point when it started but in most cases it's not a severe trauma one big injury or otherwise certainly if i'm golfing i have a lot of severe trauma when i take big divots or otherwise but many people just find that it's a chronic repetitive low-level stress on the tendons on the inside part of the outside part of the elbow okay let's talk a little bit about management of epicondylitis um, in my case my wife sold my boat so i don't get it anymore but um, how do you typically manage the lateral and medial epicondylitis i think your wife's solution is the cheapest solution to yeah, yeah. treatment of epicondylitis but truly ultimately the vast majority of epicondylitis treatment is time so it's avoiding activities that bother it and letting time take its course that's challenging in people particularly if it's occupational and they have to go back to those activities um, but in most patients it will be self-limiting meaning it will gradually get better with time this is one instance in which severity of symptoms is not necessarily associated either with the structural problems or changes that we see many patients with Lateral epicondylitis for a period of time can be really disabled with the pain that results from it. The findings that we see on MRI or with examination are not as profound, so it's really a substantially a pain-driven process. Our management starts in almost all cases. If it's a avoidable activity, let's say the boat, and you're done with painting the boat for the year, that's pretty straightforward. So if the activities can be modified to avoid those activities, that's our number one treatment of choice until the symptoms resolve. If that can't be done, then we have to mitigate symptoms while we try and get over the tendon-based irritation or tendon problem. And in most cases, for me, that requires or necessitates either form, formal, occupational, or physical therapy. So this is one area where it's interesting because as an orthopedic surgeon who does elbow surgery, I get to interface with both occupational and physical therapists. And I think this is one where What's most important is you find somebody in your community locally who has an interest in tendinopathies around the elbow. And oftentimes it's physical therapy, but occupational therapists can do a great job with this too. And starting with physical therapy and occupational therapy can lead the fastest course to recovery. And it's a lot of eccentric strengthening exercises, stretching, but also an extensive discussion and understanding between the provider and the patient about the time course about how it can be a little bit refractory to early treatment options and um, be an optimistic uh, provider in terms of their long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. Do these forearm bands with the Velcro that you cinch up, do they have a useful purpose? It's a great question and the idea makes sense. So um, we've been talking a lot about uh, lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow. So what exactly is that? And as we've looked at this, it's been studied for generations. And Dr. Nerschel was one of the first ones that described the fundamental Nerschel's lesion, which is a tearing of the extensor carpi radialis brevis. That finding we see in almost everybody. And why it sometimes causes pain and why it doesn't cause pain can be a little bit controversial. But we think it's essentially a mismatch of stress and strain right at the bone insertion of that muscle. So the idea behind any of our treatments is to protect and help those tendons remodel while they heal and keep the pain at minimum until that process happens. So the band makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's a band that goes around the radial forearm. It takes tension off of the muscle, which can protect the insertion of the tendon onto the bone, allow the inflammation to go down and heal. 
And in some cases, I think it is helpful. For me, it's symptomatic management. So if somebody says, for three weeks a year I paint my boat and I get tennis elbow every time, I would have the band on and attempt to avoid it. For somebody who says, I've had tennis elbow and I've tried the band on, on and off and usually it bothers me, then I avoid the band. Mm -hmm. And I think there are certain cases in which there's another diagnosis, which is sometimes confused, which is radial tunnel syndrome, which can actually be worsened by the band. So patients who are having increasing pain with the band are patients who I would steer away. So I think it's a little bit dealer's choice. Symptomatic management is most important for me, which is what makes it better, what makes it worse in your daily life. Yeah. I can see how maybe steroid injections might improve inflammation, but can they delay the actual healing of these fibers too? Or it's where do steroid injections fit into this? That's a great question. And I think that that was the classic treatment of choice is steroid injections to lateral epicondylitis. In my practice, that doesn't have a role, which is a little bit controversial, but I'll explain my rationale for why. First, if you look at long-term studies that look at risk factors for needing an operation for tennis elbow or risk factors for failure of non-surgical management, the most consistent is a steroid injection. So it seems that while it helps patients dramatically immediately, which I would agree with, it definitely can help with the pain immediately, it seems to be a risk factor for progression or for it to come back and be even more severe the next time. The second reason is we have some patients who have tennis elbow who end up getting instability of the elbow or actually what we call posterior lateral rotatory instability. It's a very small subset. It's only really seen in patients who've had steroid injections and or repetitive steroid injections. So in my practice, there's no role for steroid injections, but I would say if people use them in their practice, I would use them judiciously. Using one in an acute flare for symptomatic management may be beneficial, especially in terms of short-term recovery, but certainly not something that we think accelerates the recovery or shortens the time course of epicondylitis. Okay, but basically avoid what's causing the problem. Sell the boat. Sell the boat. Uh, I'll have to make sure my wife doesn't hear this because she's going to point out the fact that she was right again. All right, so let's talk about olecranon bursitis. I've seen patients with that. It looks pretty nasty, but what's actually going on there? That's a great question, and I think that there are a few different classes of olecranon bursitis. I would put uh, the one more common class, which is very similar to tennis elbow or epicondylitis, which is a repetitive injury to the soft tissue. So we need the olecranon bursa to exist between the triceps tendon, the olecranon, and the skin. So there has to be movement of the skin over that area. People who are repetitively on their hands and knees, or particularly on their elbows, resting their elbows down, can get inflammation in that bursa, which can be low-grade uh, swelling. Intermittently with, let's say, extensive activity on the elbow, that can get worse. There's a second subset, which is a little bit less common, which is patients who have a partial triceps injury of some kind, and then that can lead to some fluid accumulation. So those are patients who have an injury and then have swelling over the posterior aspect of the elbow. And in those patients, we can see a little bit of an olecranon bursitis. But I would say 95% of patients are in the first category, 5% are in the second. And it's that repetitive trauma to the posterior aspect of the elbow that can cause the fluid to accumulate and eventually it can build up and not resorb. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few patients who have had an olecranon bursitis and they had a steroid injection. Are those 
wise or best avoid that? Similar to lateral epicondylitis, I typically avoid steroid injections to the posterior aspect of the elbow. The, the data about steroid injections is not compelling that it substantially shortens the course of olecranon bursitis. And what I would say is that soft tissue envelope over the posterior aspect of the elbow is very thin. And probably three to five times a year in my practice, I'll see somebody who comes in with an infected olecranon bursitis. And in the vast majority of those cases, it's been related to a steroid injection. So the steroid injection, even when well done, can lead to infected olecranon bursitis or septic olecranon bursitis or a draining sinus. So in my practice, I avoid putting any needles or anything into the mm-hmm. olecranon bursitis. So then the question becomes, what is the optimal treatment of choice for olecranon bursitis? And essentially, compression as much as you possibly can and avoidance of activities where you're hitting the elbow on the ground or on the table is going to be the treatment of choice. And I've seen very few patients who we can't get over it with just compression. Just like tennis elbow, this is something that requires tremendous patience, a lot of counseling between you and the patient about what this could be, and how avoiding surgical or even injections can protect them from further issues down the road. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's change topics just a little bit. Um, osteoarthritis, common in the hip, hand, knee. How common is it in the elbow? It's a good question, and certainly we don't see it to be as common as hip or knee arthritis, and the main reason for that is that the elbow is not a weight-bearing joint, so it doesn't take on this, the, the major stresses of the hip and, that the hip and knee do. The other reason that it seems to be is that the elbow reacts a little bit differently to arthritis. And in many cases, patients can have fairly substantial changes on their x-ray and their symptoms can be relatively manageable. So the first things that we see with osteoarthritis is a little bit of loss of joint uh, motion. So as they start to get a little bit of stiffness, oftentimes the pain goes away because the joint starts to stiffen. They lose a little bit of range of motion. But in the elbow, as opposed to some other joints, uh, some range of motion can be lost without functional changes. So we consider a functional arc of motion of the elbow to be about 30 degrees short of full extension to flexion of 130 degrees. And if you're able to obtain even that range of motion, most people are able to do all their activities of daily living. So they can't necessarily notice a substantial decrease in their function. Once it goes past that is when patients start to ask for treatment or ask for improvement. And I think that's one of the main reasons is the stiffness is well tolerated in the elbow and early arthritis because it's non-weight bearing tends to be much better tolerated in the elbow than in the lower extremity. Okay. How about stress fractures? Do you see these in uh, problems near the elbow? Stress fractures are relatively common in one small subset of our population, which is the throwing elbow. And stress fractures in the throwing or the pitcher's elbow are extremely common. We've all heard a lot of information about Tommy John ligament repairs and ligament surgery in baseball players. And I would say equally as commonly in younger throwers, we see stress fractures or stress injuries, particularly to the medial epicondyle. That's what we call little leaguer's elbow. So in our younger patients with repetitive throwing or repetitive activities, they can have a medial epicondyle stress fracture. The other location that we occasionally see it is in the olecranon. So similar throwers can have a gradual onset of pain over the olecranon and we can see a stress fracture that in rare cases, if non-throwing um, activities 
continue to bother, it requires surgical intervention. So pretty rare in general, just because of the non-weight-bearing portion, but pretty common actually in young active throwers, particularly those who aren't following pitch counts and other mm -hmm. recommendations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the elbow a common joint for dislocation? Elbow dislocations are pretty common, and, and we see this as a result of mostly high-energy trauma. And elbow dislocations are really interesting because it's one of the few joints in the body that you can have a dislocation that is reliably treated non-surgically. So we differentiate elbow dislocations into simple and complex elbow dislocations. Simple elbow dislocations are reduced, and oftentimes we treat them non-surgically. Complex elbow dislocation means you have an elbow dislocation and you have an associated fracture, and that can be a fracture of the olecranon, fracture of the radial head, or a fracture of the coronoid. Complex elbow dislocations fall into multiple categories, almost always requiring surgical management, so those are ones that I think need a referral pretty quickly to make sure they get evaluated, usually with a CT scan and then surgery. Simple elbow dislocations, typically we put in joint, and as, as soon as the patient is ready, they start to work on range of motion and, and repetitive dislocation is uncommon after simple elbow dislocations. So in that way, it's sort of the opposite of the shoulder. The shoulder in young patients, if it dislocates, it's very likely to come back out. The elbow, if it dislocates and we put it back in and there's no fracture, in most cases, we're able to treat that non-surgically. Okay. The ulnar nerve has a very close proximity to the elbow and its course down the arm. Um, how does that get affected by elbow pathology? The ulnar nerve is one of the major drivers of a lot of the problems that we have around the elbow. And I think it is uh, oftentimes underestimated in terms of how much problem it can cause and how, how much pain it can actually contribute to. So the general categories, there's certainly cubital tunnel, which I think we all see in our practice, which is an impingement on the uh, ulnar nerve. And that tends to be uh, more common in older patients and more common in patients who have carpal tunnel or other peripheral nerve impingement issues. Most commonly we see that with uh, pain and numbness in the ring and small finger, as well as weakness in the hand musculature. So uh, cubital tunnel would be probably the most common ulnar nerve related problem. And uh, that's typically managed with non-surgical management with bracing. And if that doesn't work, then we can consider uh, ulnar nerve decompression or transposition. Mm -hmm. I think the times in which it's much less frequently noticed is, for instance, in patients who have other complicated elbow issues. For instance, medial epicondylitis oftentimes is related to some element of ulnar nerve concerns. One tidbit I think that's really helpful is to start carefully examining the ulnar nerve on examination because many patients, particularly younger active patients, can have subluxation of the ulnar nerve which allows it to subluxate around the medial epicondyle. This is particularly true for weightlifters or people with large triceps. That can cause medial elbow pain. It can cause some ulnar nerve symptoms. Sometimes the symptoms are a little bit more vague though, and that can be easily detected with a careful physical exam over the medial elbow. Mm -hmm. And then the final time is anytime we do an operation in or around the elbow, the ulnar nerve is, a, is a, of substantial concern for us in terms of both soft tissue handling, as well as post-operative recovery. It's in a pretty tenuous location, traveling right around the medial epicondyle by the trochlea, and it's intimately involved with the elbow joint. So anything that we do, be it total elbow replacements or 
fracture surgery around the elbow can implicate the ulnar nerve and contribute to symptoms in the ulnar nerve after surgery. Now, I've seen a few patients who came in complaining of elbow pain when, in fact, the pain was originating from another area, shoulder or neck. Spend a, just a minute or so talking about referred pain. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I think it, it starts with any upper limb problem, be it shoulder, elbow, or hand. We have to start with a um, careful history and physical exam of the cervical spine. And I think I see a lot of patients who have cervical spine-related pathology that is referred to the elbow or down into the hand. And for me, that's a careful exam, a careful discussion of factors that make it better, factors that make it worse. Um, timing and severity of the symptoms. Is it related to elbow position or elbow activity or not? And then a careful physical exam with careful attention to cervical range of motion and particularly Sperling's maneuver. And if their symptoms are exacerbated by Sperling's maneuver into that arm, I think it's pretty characteristic that it's related to the cervical spine and then further worth workup is, is necessary. But of the patients that come in with elbow-related problems, a substantial subset are going to be related to some other referred pain from um, particularly the cervical spine. Mm-hmm. How about carpal tunnel syndrome? Does that refer backwards to, to the elbow? Is that uh, seen at all? It, it seems to be a little bit less common. I think sometimes patients have a little bit of a hard time differentiating exactly where their pain is coming from. Right. And they might, might say that, for instance, their whole hand feels numb and it's certain fingers or otherwise. And that's where I think provocative testing, for instance, Tenel's sign at the wrist or the Phelan-Durkin test where you uh, flex the wrist can be really helpful to differentiate. And if that's exacerbating symptoms, then it's pretty straightforward. I love to use the cubital tunnel compression test as one of my major tests with um, the ulnar nerve in general, which is flexing the nerve, applying pressure, or flexing the elbow, applying pressure over the ulnar nerve, and watching to see what symptoms develop. And I think it will really um, oftentimes bring out ulnar nerve symptoms that are a little bit more difficult to bring out just from the history. Okay. Well, John, can you summarize a few important points regarding pain in the elbow? Yeah. um, I think that the most important parts to take home from this are, first of all, the vast majority with a careful physical exam and history, the vast majority of elbow problems and pathology can be boiled down to a few main things, particularly lateral epicondylitis, medial epicondylitis, ulnar nerve uh, issues. I think the second part about that is that this requires an ongoing relationship with your patient because it's something that can be recalcitrant. It can come and go over time, and it requires a lot of patience on both of your parts in terms of gradually allowing symptoms to get better as you're nursing along the symptoms. And I think the final thing is having a close relationship with your physical or occupational therapist who can help you work through these problems, um, can work back and forth with you as a provider to say, these are things that I'm worried about or that are not going the right direction and help to res- resolve the patient's symptoms in the elbow. We've been discussing the various causes of elbow pain with Dr. John Barlow, an orthopedist at the Mayo Clinic. John, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.